take your Bibles, and I invite you to turn once again to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. We want to continue our study in God's Word in Ephesians, and we have made our way to chapter 5, and we come now to verses 7 through 17, but I want us to begin reading in verse 5, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning our reading in verse 5, and over the next couple of Lord's Days, our focus will be on verses 7 through 17. The title of the message is simply this, Walk as Children of Light, Part 1. Ephesians 5, beginning reading in verse 5. The Word of God says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, as we learn in the book of Ephesians, we are learning here how God sanctifies His people. We are learning here in the book of Ephesians how Christian growth takes place. And throughout the whole course of church history, there have been so many different ideas and many false ideas about sanctification. There have been many false ideas of how the Lord grows His people. For example, some people have taught an instant kind of sanctification. They say that, well, here's how God grows His people. You, you, you have some, some great experience after salvation. You have, you, you have this experience with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, you are sort of catapulted into a new realm of spiritual living, a new realm of, of spiritual experience. Uh, you're, you're put on a spiritual mountaintop. And so what you need to do is you need to now just be careful not to come down from that mountaintop. You need to sort of, in your life, maintain this spiritual mountaintop. And so if you have this kind of experience with the Holy Spirit, you, you sort of get this instant spiritual maturity uh, a sort of instant arrival into a brand new realm of Christian experience. The problem with that is that the Bible does not teach that. That's a false concept of sanctification. Another one is this. Others have taught that sanctification takes place really as, as you and I sort of get out of the way. Uh, in other words, what you, you hear is you hear people sort of put it like this. Well, what we need to do as believers is, is we just simply need to get ourselves out of the way. And you've probably heard the phrase, what we need to really do is we need to let go and what? Let God, right. We just need to let go. We need to, we need to just move ourselves out of the way and let go and, and let God. And that what is really required, and it's no real effort on our part, uh, there are no steps that we need to take. Uh, we just need to, to give things entirely over to the Lord. And what we need to be is just entirely passive. And so we just need to get out of the way. We need to let the Lord just do what He's going to do and to do His will. And again, that is a false concept of sanctification. The, the Bible doesn't present it to, to us like that, that we just, we just let go and we just let God, that we just get ourselves out of the way and somehow we become entirely passive in the sanctification. The Bible doesn't teach that. Another one is this. Still others have taught sort of a, a, a grudging march 
forward in our duty. Uh, that sanctification really is just sort of a, a, a self-improvement type of program. So, so what you do is this, okay? You, we have the, okay, we have the Word of God. And so what we need to do, we need, we need to understand this. We need to understand the facts here. We need to understand the data that's here. And, and, then, and then what you do is, it, now they wouldn't say this. They wouldn't just come right out and actually put this into words and, and say this. But what it amounts to is this. Once we know what the Word of God says, we know the facts, we know the data. Now in our own strength, in our own bare effort, well, what you need to do is you just need to do your very best for God. And it's just simply that. You just learn the data, you learn the facts, and then you sort of just grudgingly just clench your teeth and you move forward in this. And so that's what you're supposed to do. And in this sort of thinking, there's no real emphasis upon our need for Christ. There's no real emphasis upon our need for the Holy Spirit of God. And so then sanctification is simply doing what you know to do. Okay, I know what the Word of God says. I know what I need to do. Now, pull myself up by my own bootstraps and just do it. And, and it's that thinking. And again, that is a false concept of sanctification. Rather, what you see in Scripture, and what we see especially here in Ephesians 5, what we've been looking through really throughout this whole book, is that first of all, what we have to do is we, under, we need to understand accurately what the Lord has done in our lives when He saved us. That's the very first thing we need to do. We, we need to understand what salvation is. Yes, we need to understand our new position in Christ, but also in addition to that, we need to understand our new condition in Christ. We need to know this. We must understand what the Lord really did when He saved us. What, what did the Lord do when He saved you? But, but what did He do in your life? What, what does the Lord do when He saved sinners? So, first of all, there has to be an accurate view of salvation. And then second, we need to understand all of the possibilities that now result because of our salvation. Because we've been saved. Not only what the Lord has done for us, but also what the Lord can do through us now. Uh, now what is available to us in Christ. Now what is possible for us to do. Now what we have the capacity in Christ, in salvation, because of what He has done in saving us. And so that is what you find in Scripture. And then in light of that, what salvation is, and then what the possibilities are as a result of salvation, then what do we do? We walk submitted to Him. We learn His truth, and now with complete dependence upon the Lord, and with at the same time all of the effort of our own hearts, we walk submitted to Him. And so, what is sanctification? Sanctification is not a spiritual zap to where I'm there. Sanctification is not just letting go and letting God and me being totally passive. Sanctification is not just me knowing the Word of God and I'm just going to grip my teeth and bear it because it's all on me now to walk forward in my sanctification. No. Sanctification is complete dependence upon the Lord and complete effort all at the same time. We, being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God, we walk in the truth of God. And it is only possible because of what He has done in our lives. It is only possible because He has saved us. It is only possible because He has set us free to be able to experience that. Now, that is biblical <laughs> sanctification. And that's exactly what we find here in this new section in verses 7 through 17. Again, what he's doing here is he's telling us of realities here. He's telling us things that now are real in our lives because we have been saved. He's telling us what the possibilities are now that we have been saved. And then he's calling on us to actually obey the Lord. To actually walk according to the Lord's will. To actually walk in what he tells us to do here. Now, through, through all of these, all of what we've been learning in Ephesians, and even what we're going to learn this morning here, through all of this, 
we're being tested. We're being tested to see, are we truly saved? Every single one of us who name the name of Christ are being tested in this way. Because as he describes to us what the position of a Christian is, and what the condition of a Christian is, it may become painfully aware to you that you know what? He's not describing me here. This is not me. I mean, you may read all of this about Christians, all of these things that the Lord has done in His people that He saved, and you may realize, you know what? This, this really does not describe me in my life. And I want to ask you this question right up front, right at the beginning here. If that is you, then let me ask you this question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? If as we look at this, you say, this is not me. That this is not me. And if this doesn't sound like it's you, then I want to tell you this. God in His sovereign providence has you here this morning. And He is graciously and He is mercifully revealing to you that you have never been saved. That you've never been truly saved. So we need to see what the Apostle Paul is telling us here this morning. What does he tell us in verses 7 and following about our position in Christ? About the ramifications of it? And what we're to do? So this morning we're going to be looking at it in a uh, a very general way. Next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going we're gonna to really bolt down into this. And we're going to look at it in detail. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you this morning three realities, three absolute realities that are true of your life if indeed you have truly been saved. And you can see these in your bulletin. Hopefully that will help you follow along. Hopefully those are the three hooks that you can sort of hang your thoughts on this morning. So three things that are true in your life if you are truly a Christian. What's the first thing we see here that's true? Well, if you are truly a Christian, the first thing we see here is this, that you belong to a new group of people. You belong to a new group of people. Notice what he says in verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Do not be partakers with them. Do you see that? With them, you are no, you no longer belong to them, you see. You no longer live in the same realm as they do. In other words, as we've said many, many times, there are two distinct groups of people in this world. And only two, in this sense. Only two. There's no one here in mid-transition. You're either a part of them or you are a part of us. That's it. That's how he puts it here in verse 2. Look at it again. I want you to see this with your own eyeballs. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for, what does it say? Us. Us. Or as he says in verse 3, notice, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. You see, there, there are saints living in this world. There are holy ones of God. People who have been changed by God. Verse 6, notice. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do you see that? So what do we have in this world? We have saints, and then we also have sons of disobedience. And then he says in verse 7, Therefore, meaning you, Christian, you, saint of God, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Who is the them there? It is the sons of disobedience. There are people who belong to God because they have been joined to the Lord Jesus Christ and there are people who don't belong to God. There are people who have been forgiven through Christ and through His perfect life in His perfect atoning death. And there are people in this world who are still in their sins. There are children of God. There are children of the light. Verse 8. And there are also, by implication, children of darkness and children of Satan. So there are children of God. There are children of Satan. 
There is, notice, look at these verses. There's the us, verse 7. There's the them, verse 7. There's the saints, verse 3. There's the immoral, the impure, the covetousness, the idolatrous, verse 5. So there are two distinct groups of people in this world. There is the children of God, and there is the children of the devil. There is Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers. And if you've been saved, if you are a Christian, you now belong to this new group of people. You are now in the family of God. You have now been brought into the kingdom of Christ. And you will forever belong to that realm. Forever. Now, one of the things that every single week that I always pray for myself and I pray for you is that this, as we step through the Word of God, as we study the Word of God, that we would always be reformed by the Word of God in the sense that we would see things as God sees things and not see things in the way that man would want to see things. That we would truly see things in a biblical way with a biblical vantage point. From the vantage point of the Word of God. And one of the things that is very, very hard for us to realize sometimes is the distinction between these two groups of people who live upon the face of the earth. This distinction here. For example, you may meet with someone and they are uh, nicely dressed, very well-mannered, very generous in what they do and how they talk about people and what they say, very friendly, very kind, very moral. But they don't know Christ. They have not been saved. Do you realize that if they do not repent, they belong to the very same realm as when I was in Haiti and I would talk to the pastors there and they would tell me about the witch doctors that are there in Haiti, the ones who practice voodoo. Do you realize that that person, the well-dressed, well-mannered, kind, merciful person who is unsaved belongs to the very same realm that a voodoo Haitian witch doctor belongs to. Do you really see that? Do you really, do you really understand that? Do you understand there is no third category here, okay? There's not category number one where you have Christians, and then category number two where you have you know, nice, well-mannered folks, and then category number three, the children of Satan. You don't have three categories here. You just have two. And the only difference between that well-dressed, well-mannered, kind, merciful individual that you're speaking with and you spoke to and the voodoo witch doctor in Haiti, the only difference is the outward manifestation of their sinfulness. That really is the only difference. Because it's not that one has a better nature than the other one does. No, no. They are both born in Adam. They are both born sinners to the core. The only difference between the two of what you see on the outside is that manifestation. It just shows up differently in the two. The outside looks different, but in the case of both of them, their lives are full of dead men's bones. The outside looks clean in one. But inside of both, just dead men's bones in both cases. 1 John chapter 2.22 gives us these two categories in stark terms. Listen to this very carefully. It says this. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now, let me just stop right there and ask this question here. How many of you would look at your lost neighbor or the lost person that you work with who does not know Christ, and you would say, you know what? That individual is living in the realm of Antichrist. I mean, how, how many of you would say that? You see, we're not used to thinking like that, right? We're not used to thinking like that. We would more likely say, okay, well, I mean, come on. They're not living in the realm of Antichrist, yes, yeah, sure. They do not know Christ as their Savior. Uh, we know that. That's a fact. I mean, they may not be a Christian, but they don't live in the realm of Antichrist. 
uh, being anti-Christian. But listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 again. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Listen to this. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So right here, th these are your two categories right here. Those who confess the Son of God. You say confess. Well, what does confess mean? They are confessing that God is their Lord. They are confessing that God is their Lord and Savior. They, this says, belong to the Father. And so they who deny Jesus Christ. Well, well who would they be? Well, it's those who don't do that. It's those who don't make the real, true, sincere, honest confession that God is their Savior. They're the ones who have not come to know the Lord and Savior. And this says they belong to the realm of Antichrist. Listen to this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. It says this, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is a spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. First, first John chapter 5, verse 12 says, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Or even as our Lord said in John chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. It doesn't say that the wrath of God will come on him. It says the wrath of God abides upon him. He is currently, right now, under the wrath of God. And the wrath of God currently abides upon everyone who does not know the Son, who does not believe the Son, and who does not obey the Son. Well, if you're a believer... By the saving grace of God, not by you being so good, but by the saving grace of God, here's a reality. This is true in your life. You once belonged to that realm. I once belonged to that realm. All lost mankind is right there in that realm. But God in His grace saved you. God in His grace, His merciful grace, He saved a, a sinner like me who was in this realm. And now what this says about us is that now you are children of light. You are a beloved child of God, Ephesians 5 says. You are among those for whom Christ died and He was raised again. It says He gave Himself for us, for those who trust in Him, for those who believe upon Him. And you are no longer among those that Ephesians 5 describes as immoral, impure, covetous, and idolatrous. Listen, you're not that anymore. You're, you're not a son of disobedience. You're not that. Rather, you have been made a child of life. And you belong to the children of God. And you have been transferred into the kingdom of God. And it is all by His saving grace that you now belong to a new people. That is an unchangeable reality. Now, there's a second reality in these verses. Not only do you belong to a new people, but if you're a Christian, you possess a new freedom. You possess a new freedom. Something you notice throughout this section is that God, God is addressing His people here with, with moral imperatives. He's telling us what we're to do, and he's telling us what we're not to do. Go up, scroll up, and look at verse 1. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That, that is what we're to do. Look at verse 3. He says in verse 3, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Verse 4, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. He's telling you what to do. He's telling you what not to do. And do you realize that, the, that, that God only does this with saved people? 
He only does this with saved people. Only, only God's children are addressed as people who have the ability to walk in this truth. Now, please don't understand this. The whole world stands accountable to the righteous standard in this universe. And who is the righteous standard in this universe? It is God. It is God Himself. The whole world stands accountable before God. And lost men and lost women will answer one day for the sins, the transgressions that they have committed against a holy God. And there's no doubt about it that the law of God exposes their hearts. It exposes their sins. That the law of God exposes and condemns their sins. They are under the sentence of wrath. There's no doubt about that. But now, when God addresses lost mankind... He ne never tells them, well, here's what you need to do. You need to live a good enough life in order to earn my favor. He never says that to them. What you have to do, lost man, lost woman, is you have to be busy about obeying me. He never tells them that. What he tells them is, here is my law. You have fallen short of it. And what you are to do is to repent of your sin and believe upon the only one who has kept the law. The only one who has done what you could never do, believe upon Christ, the Lord and Savior, and be saved. Now, after that has happened in your life, after you have bowed the knee in your heart to Christ and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ due to the gracious work of God in your heart, after there has been true repentance of sin, after there has been true saving faith in God, now notice what happens. What happens? Now, God comes to you as someone who's been redeemed. Now, God comes to you as someone who's been saved. And He says, here now, here now is how you must not live. And here is now how you must live. And now He addresses us with moral imperatives. Why? Well, why does He speak to us now in this way? It's because you've been set free. You've been set free. And now for the first time, you actually have the ability. You actually have the capacity to actually walk in the truth of the Word of God. You didn't have it before, being the lost person that you were. But now you do. And God now speaks to believers as responsible people. You are responsible. You are people who can do this. He speaks to us as people who not only can do this, He speaks to us as people who must do this. We must do this. We've been set free. Someone who has been saved is someone who has had the bondage of sin broken in his or her life. There was a time you once were under the dominion and the domain of sin, but now no longer in Christ. You have had that broken in your life. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. Now, when he speaks of the old self there, he's speaking about the totality of the person that you and I were in Adam, who we were born as from the very beginning. That old self, he says, was crucified with Christ. And he goes on and he says this, In order that our body of sin this body that is dominated by sin, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Now listen to this. So that, in other words, because, so that, we would no longer, you see, we once were this, but we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now I want to tell you folks, that is a very strong word there. Slaves. Slaves. Believers... Do you, do you realize that that is the relationship that you once had to sin? And sin once had to you? you? You were slaves here. Do you realize that? Do you realize that when it came to sin, that you used to be just uh, sin's plaything? Do you understand that? that? That sin had you. You you were a slave. A slave to sin. And then do you realize that is the relationship to sin that every single unbeliever has today. They are slaves to sin. I want to tell you this. One of the greatest lies that has ever been perpetrated 
among the human race is this, that me coming to Christ means me losing my freedom. That is one of the greatest lies that has ever been perpetrated. Well, you know, I don't want to come to Christ. If I come to Christ, I'm going to have to give this up. And I'm going to have to give that up. And I'm going to have to lose this freedom. And, and, and no, the Bible never addresses people who come to Christ as losing their freedom. No, you gain freedom in coming to Christ. The Bible tells lost people they're not free. That they're slaves. Now, Satan wants to convince people that, yeah, without Christ you are free, you're not a slave, but the truth of the Word of God is this. If you do not know Christ, you are in bondage, you are a slave, you are the slave of sin and Satan, the world, the flesh, the devil. You are in chains. You are a slave to sin. And the only reason you don't feel that you are a slave is simply this, because your desires and Satan's desires are in line with one another. Your desires are in accord with Satan's desires, and that's why you do not feel like you are a slave, a captive to all that he would have. Satan has his desires, and in your lost condition, in your lost state, your desires are the very same as his desires. And that is why you do not feel like you're a slave. But you are. That's just the reality of it. You are. And only the Lord Jesus Christ can set you free. And only Christ can give you the, the heart change necessary so that you would want to walk this way. So that you would want to walk in Christ's ways and in God way, God's ways. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 36, So if the Son makes you free... You will be free indeed. So let me ask you this. Do you recognize this about yourself? That you have been free from a bondage of sin? I mean, I really want to speak to you today. Test yourself in this. Do you recognize this about yourself? That there was a time in which you were a slave to sin, and that's how you lived. And quite frankly, you enjoyed it. You love it. You enjoy those sinful things. That's how you wanted to live. That's how you enjoyed living. You, you, you love that. But praise be to God that by His grace, He brought you all the way to Christ and He brought you to life spiritually. You're not a dead man spiritually anymore. And you saw the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ and you turn from that lifestyle of sin. And then that, that bondage had been broken in your life. And now, now there's something new. You, you have the desire, you have the capacity to walk in the truth of God's Word. Let me ask you this. Is that you? And the answer to that question is yes or no. Is this you? If this isn't you, the pressing need for your life right now, the number one thing that should be at the very top of your to-do list, far above all other things, is that you need to be saved. You need to be saved. And so here are the two realities of the Christian, the believer. You now belong to a new group of people, and you now, praise God, you have a new freedom. A new freedom. Your bondage to sin has been broken. You are no longer a slave to sin. Now this leads us to a third reality. And we'll see this in verse 8 and really throughout the entire section. And that is this third. If you're a Christian, you have a formerly and a now. Now I want to tell you, I know there's a better way to say that. And I sat at my desk for probably too long trying to think of a better way to say that, but I could not think of a better way, so I just went with that. So there it is. If you're saved, you have a formally and you have a now. Look at verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So, if you're saved, 
You have a formerly and you have a now. You have a distinct past, you have a distinct present and future that is altogether different from your past because you are altogether different yourself. You've been made new. And I think we, we need to remind people of exactly what we're talking about in salvation. What is salvation? I mean, what, what is this thing that, that God has done here? We're not talking about cleaning up a person's life. We're not talking about sort of sucking it up and like a New Year's resolution, we're turning over a new leaf. We're not talking about what is sometimes, uh, you can see sometimes in what are known as uh, fundamental type churches where the idea that sometimes you would get there is this. Well, coming to Christ, what does that mean? It means getting a new set of clothes that, that sort of meet approval. It means getting a new haircut that sort of meets the approval of everyone. It means this sort of new outward style of living that meets the approval of everyone. No, that's not Christianity. That is not Christianity. We're not, we're not talking about cleaning up a person's life on the outside. We're not talking about sort of just adopting this, this new philosophy that someone has just sort of picked up and they began to, to, to live it out and do it. Oh, you became a Christian? I became a carnivore. You know, so uh, I'm on keto or whatever, you know. The, okay, well, you subscribe to that, I subscribe to this. No, when you talk about salvation, here's what you're talking about. You are talking about creation. You're talking about a creative act of Almighty God. That is what you're talking about. Bringing something entirely new into being. That's what we're talking about. You need to realize th this is not reformation in someone's life. This is not just adopting some, some improvement in your life. No, this is creation. Think about it. When God created the universe, what are those two Latin words they always use? Ex nihilo, right? He creates out of nothing. And so when God created this universe, he created that way out of nothing. Everything that has come into being has come into being because God created it and He created it out of nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing and God said, let there be. And from nothing, God brought everything into being that has been brought into being. Well, Christian, believer, I want to ask you something. How does the Bible describe you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. Creature. You're a brand new creation. If you're a Christian, you are someone who you were not before you were saved. This is not just sort of saying, okay, I'm going to act better. No. This is something brand new that has been brought into being. Now, sometimes this is very difficult for us to comprehend and, and to properly evaluate because in so many uh, real ways, we're the same person. You know, I, I'm, I'm Van Loomis, and, and I, I'm the same Van Loomis I was for the first 19 years of my life, and then I was saved, and then after that, I was still Van Loomis. I mean, I was just the same person in many ways. Before I was saved, there were certain uh, personality traits and characteristics I had. And after I was saved, I still have many of those same personality traits and, and characteristics. Some of you, uh, before you were saved, you had a very quick wit. You had a wonderful sense of humor. You, you were quick on the draw with those things. And then you became a Christian. And now you still have a wonderful sense of humor, and you're quick-witted and all that. Uh, probably some of those things that you did have been sanctified and cleaned up, but it's a result of your salvation. But again, you still have that quick wit. Some of us, when we were saved, um, before we were saved, I should say, we were sort of had that, uh, uh, you know, you're sort of that math side of the brain person, right? And then some of us were sort of that English lit side of the brain person. Well, when you come to Christ, if you're math sided, you don't become like English lit sided like overnight. No, that doesn't happen. So, so if we say that there are these identifiable 
parts of our personality that didn't change with salvation, well then what exactly did change? What, what changed? In what, in what sense, in what way am I a new creation? In what, what way, what is the new nature? What is this new person that has been brought into being by the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, what we're talking about really is we're talking about trying to understand regeneration. Regeneration. It gets to the nature of regeneration. So I want to talk about that just a little bit today. What is regeneration? Or there are many, many other ways we could describe it. We could call it the new birth. We could call it uh, new life. We could call it new light. Uh, we could talk about uh, ourselves as, as this new creation, uh, having a new heart. All of these terms the Bible uses to describe regeneration. So now, what is regeneration? Well, first of all, I think what we can say about it is this, and I think this is where we need to start. Regeneration is an act of God. Regeneration is an act of God. It is not an act of man it is an act of God. The same power, Scripture says, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that explains the Christian. Let me say that again. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead explains you if you were truly saved. Your new birth was the result of the power of God. Now, listen. What kind of power does God have? The scripture is very plain. Very plain. We put a theological word upon it. We say God is omnipotent, right? He is omnipotent, which is to say that God has all power. So if God determines to save someone, what's going to happen? You tell me. He's going to be saved, right? He's going to be saved. When God determines to regenerate someone, they're regenerated. No one resists the power of God. And so this is an act of God. This is a result of the power of God. Another thing we could say is this. If we want to put it in a negative fashion. Third, it is not the result of an act of our soul. It is not the result of an act of our soul. In other words, we don't believe that we were regenerated because of the choice that we made. If you and I have been made alive, if you and I have been made uh, to be a new creation, it is because of the choice of God. And let me ask you a question. Let me ask a question to all believers here, okay? All Christians who are in this place. Listen very carefully. Did you, Christian, did you, believer, choose Jesus Christ as your Lord? Some of you are wondering. It's not a trick question, okay? <laughs> yes, absolutely you did. You did. You did choose Christ as your Lord. Uh, and in that sense, you did choose Him. But how many people who were here today, how many chose Christ? How many exercised saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you're a Christian here today, you did. Every one of us did. There's no way to be saved outside of exercising faith in Christ. So, yes, you did. But now let me ask you this. Let me, let me step back, one step backwards with a question. Okay? Why? Why did you choose Christ? Why did you believe? Did God choose you? And the answer to that is, yes, He did. Yes, He did. God made a choice and then God did something called regeneration that then resulted in your choice. And so what I'm saying is this. You made the choice to trust Christ after God made His choice of you. After God regenerated you. Listen to this. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. You cannot have unregenerate people trusting in Christ, unregenerate people having faith in Jesus Christ. They won't do it and they would not ever do it in a million years. It will never happen. 
God had to do a regenerating work deep down in our soul to give us new life. Now, understand this. We're not talking about justification. Justification takes place after you have trusted in Christ. But regeneration, regeneration is an act of God where, listen, you were completely passive in that. You were passive in that. This is something that you were passive in. This is something where, where you did not make a choice in this. God implanted His new birth into you. And He gave you life. The life of God in the soul of man. And then, then you could see who Christ is. Then for the first time you could truly understand who Christ is. And now that you could see who Christ is, and now that you could understand who Christ is for the very first time in your life, you know what you did? You desired Him. You trusted in Him. You, you believed upon Him with your own will. Yes, I said that. Will. Those of us who are Reformed, we believe in a will, right? God did not drag you kicking and screaming into His kingdom against your will. God did not in any way violate your will. Many people would say that. No. What did God do? He regenerated you so that now, now you could see. Now you could understand. Now you could desire the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. And now for the first time. How many gospel presentations did you hear? Probably countless if you were raised in the church. But what happened this time? Now, for the very first time, you love Him. And you came to Him. That, that is why so many people misunderstand the sovereignty of God in salvation. They say, no, what you people believe, you believe God just drags people into His kingdom. Oh no, oh no we don't. We absolutely do not believe that. What we believe is this. That God graciously condescends down, down, down to regenerate sinners. And then they trust Christ of their own will, of their own accord, of their own volition. And yes, they do have a will. And out of that regenerated life, out of that new life, yes, they choose. They choose Christ. And that is something completely different, completely different from saying that Christ drags people kicking and screaming against their will into His kingdom. We don't teach that God drags people into His family. We teach that God graciously makes lost sinners alive in Christ. And then they see what they could never see before. And then they desire the one whom they could never desire before. And they trust Christ in the way that they have never trusted Him before. And this is why repentance and faith are a gift from God. This is why God gets all, all the glory in salvation. Repentance and faith are received through regeneration. You say, okay, man, well... That sounds like consistent theology. But you're going to have to give me some Bible for that. You're going to have to back that up with the Word of God. I'm glad you point that out because that's exactly what I want to do. Take your Bibles and turn to what I believe is the premier passage on this. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. And why I love these two verses is this. We see both sides of the equation here. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. John writes this, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now, we need to stop right there and ask, who are the children of God? Look, look at the verse here. Let's, let's follow along with the thought here. Who are the children of God? It is those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who, who is God given the right to become His children. It is those who receive Christ. So, all right, so, so far, there's no confusion here, right? We're really no objection here, right? But now, now we ask the question, well, how 
do you explain this? How, how do you explain them receiving Christ when others do not receive Christ? Well, why do they receive Christ when there are many, many, many others who do not do what this verse is talking about? They do not receive Christ. How, the, how do you explain them believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ when many, many other people don't do that here? Well, I would submit to you that the answer is found in this birth that they've experienced. Look at verse 13. Who were born. If you write in your Bible, I would underline that. I'd put a circle around that. And if you happen to have a highlighter in your Bible, I would highlight over the word. That's key right there. The word born. Now I'm going to show you that this can be referring to what he's just talked about in verse 12. Because that's talking about receiving Christ. That's talking about having faith in Christ. Notice this. Who were born not of blood. Well, what does that mean? It means that when you go to explain this, you cannot explain this by physical birth. It can't be explained by physical birth. You're not talking that someone is a Christian here because they were born in a certain family. You can't explain, uh, you can't look at someone's lineage and say, well, look at their lineage, look at their family tree. That's why they're a Christian. I mean, look at that. No, that's not what this is saying here. It is not by physical birth. Notice next. Okay, so first of all, let's keep this in our mind. So first of all, the new birth is not explained by blood. And now notice as we read on, nor of the will of the flesh. Flesh. We're talking about effort here. You don't explain it by effort either. It's not that you did certain things and that and, and, and you, you, you really went forward in certain things. And so now, now because you did that, the will of the flesh, now you've earned the right to be born again. No, it's not explained by that. But let me show you one other thing that it's not explained by. Look at verse 13. Nor of, now what does he say here? The will of man. This birth cannot be explained by your choice either. Do you know who explains your new birth? What does it say at the end of verse 13? But of God. But of God. And so God granted you a birth. It is a spiritual birth. It is a new birth. God granted you a birth that was life. And this life enabled you to receive His Son, to believe upon His Son. And now that you have done that, now you are known as a child of Almighty God. The Reformers put it this way, quote, Regeneration is not a change in the substance of our soul or any one faculty of our soul, but is the unconscious implanting. Did you get that? Unconscious, unconscious implanting. Passive, right? The unconscious implanting of new life in our soul that changes the entirety of our soul. End quote. What does that mean? Well, it means that regeneration involves the change in the entirety of your soul. Just like what it says here. You, 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 you see now what you couldn't see before. You desire now what you could not desire before. And you choose now what you have never been able to choose before. It was an entire change of your soul. It was not just a change in one part here, one part there. Not just a change in your mind. Not just a change in your emotions. Not just a change in your will. No, it was a total change. Because it was a total new birth. It's a new creation. The entirety of your soul is affected. It is the presence of brand new life. So getting back to this, turn back to Ephesians 2. Let me show you another passage, okay? Again, what are we talking about? We're talking about this. That you have a formerly and you have a now. A formerly what you used to be and a now what you actually are. Ephesians 2. Look beginning in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You, you see, you, you weren't free, were you? I mean, you weren't free. Look at this. Now, he says in verse 2 that here's what you were doing. You were walking a course. There was a course that was mapped out for you. It is the course of this world, he says. It is a course according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's Satan, right? That's the devil. So, you were a slave to sin. You were a slave to Satan. Now, verse 3. Among them... So, so there's the them and the us as well, there's this new group of people that we are. Among them, we too all formerly live in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, the rest still are. They still are. Now notice, but God. How do you explain your salvation, Christian? This is it right here. But God. It's not that, oh, I got smarter. I finally, I finally just understood all this stuff. It's not because, well, you know, my heart was really hard before. Now, now I got really sensitive. And you know what? I just wised up. I just like, you know, I need this in, in, in my life. It's not that, no, I'm just spiritually more sensitive. And, and I want to sort of glom on to this Christ stuff and this church stuff. And these people are really nice over here. No, it's not that. No, look at what it says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, you see, not only a different present, but a different future, in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith, not of yourselves. No part of this thing that is called salvation is explained by you. Look at what it says. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. And what are we? Look at it. Created creation. We are His workmanship created. New life. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Praise God. If you're a believer, you have a before and you have an after. You have a formally and you have a now. I have who I was before and I have who I am now in Christ. So as we finish this morning, let me just ask you this. Just going right down our, our outline here. Is it true of you that you have been made a part of a new people? Is it true of you that you have been given this brand new freedom? Is it true of you that it can be said that you have a formally and you have a now? That you were darkness, but now you are light. That once you were unfruitful, but now, now, there is the fruit of the believer that is displayed, that is manifested, that is shown forth in your Christian life now. Is that you? I mean, you have to answer this truthfully in your heart. May the Holy Spirit help you to audit your own life right now, this very moment. Is this you? Praise God that every true Christian in this place can honestly say with a clean conscience and a heart laid before the Lord, that is me. That is me because of God's grace. Because of what He has done. And if you can't say that, you know what? We still need to give praise to Almighty God. You know why? Because He is showing you this. And He is a God who even now at this moment is an almighty God who is almighty to save and He will save you. And if you will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So if this doesn't describe you, I pray that you would just let loose of your pride, whatever it is you're holding on to. Maybe you're thinking this whole thing that, that, that I'm really free now, but if I come to Christ, I'm going to be a slave. No, it's the other way around. You're a slave now to a horrible taskmaster 
And yes, if you come to Christ, you'll be a slave of Christ. But I want to tell you, you'll be wearing a yoke that is not burdensome. It is easy in Christ because of who He is. He makes all the difference in all of this. Let's pray. Well, Father in Heaven, we thank You for what You do in salvation. Thank You for what You've done in our lives. It is not something that, that, that we just merely convinced ourselves of, but, but these are things that are realities that are unmistakable and unchangeable, and they are undeniable. Father, may You draw sinners to Yourself through Christ. And may those who have been saved Father, may we lift up hearts that are full of thanks to You, realizing that, that, that the explanation for what has happened in our lives and who we are in Christ, Father, really it's, it's found in these two words that we see in Ephesians 2, but God. So, Father, You have done this. May You be greatly praised for this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.